Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. All right, so now we have identifications of the shooter and the victim at UNC Chapel Hill. The uh, I don't uh, I, I'm not going to be identifying the murderer, alleged murderer, uh, in the case, but the uh, the victim has now been identified as Professor Gigi Yang, a member of the faculty. And he was the academic advisor for the suspect. Yan was an associate professor in the Department of Applied Physical Sciences, according to WRAL, where he focused on nanoscience technology. The shooter, a second-year doctoral student who was taken into custody after the shooting, worked closely with Yan's research group at UNC since early 2022. Police say that the incident happened in a lab on campus. The two of them actually co-authored research papers in recent years on the effect of light on nanoparticles. Yan's recent work focused on something called optical tweezers, a process using light aimed at developing advanced nanorobots within cells, according to an article that uh, on the Applied Physical Sciences Department website. Um, we had this guy, and what did I say yesterday when I saw the photo that they were circulating for the bolo, for the be on the lookout? I said the photo looked like a student photo. And it was. This guy was a student at UNC. This was his faculty advisor. This is one of those things about violent crime in America, and I would suspect probably worldwide is that um, you are more likely to be harmed. You are more likely to be victimized by somebody, you know, than somebody you do not. These stranger random acts of violence are incredibly rare. They make all the news, but they are incredibly rare. And I suspect this story will fade from the news media pretty quickly for a couple of reasons. Number one is that it is in fact, uh, appears to be some sort of, quote, workplace violence, you know, the kind like they dubbed the Fort Hood shooter, right, who was screaming something like Aloha salad bar or something when he murdered a bunch of uh, military service members. Workplace violence of some kind, personal beef, grudge, personality conflict, whatever. They took the, the suspect into custody, so I don't know if he'll talk. Um... But the other reason I suspect it's going to fade pretty quickly from the, the news media is the fact that um, the guy might not have been here legally and therefore, I mean, well, I shouldn't say not been here legally. He was probably here on a student visa, but he was not a U.S. citizen. And I'm not sure he was allowed to purchase a firearm. So I'm not sure how he got the gun. Maybe he could have, but I don't think so. But, you know. 
in all these types of circumstances, the immediate thing to do is to rush out and to accuse people that you don't already like for being the reason why the thing happened that was so bad. And so you you pin the murder on, not the murderer, but on the people who enact policies that you don't like that have something tangentially to do with a detail of the murder. In this case, it was the use of a firearm. We have no idea whether any of the laws that the people on the left want to see adopted, I saw it tied yesterday to uh, the repeal of the, the, the pistol purchase permit system and the sheriff's, uh, uh, the sheriff's role in that process, right? I've seen it tied to that. There's no indication that that had anything to do with this. No, the people who use this, they are standing on the dead bodies of gun victims, usually before the, the crime scenes have even been cleared, and they use the attacks as the reason to emotionally blackmail people into doing something of a policy preference that the blackmailers want to see done. And in this case, it's about taking up guns. I don't even think they knew what kind of firearm was used. I don't even think I know what kind of a firearm was used at this point. Now, when these when these attacks happen, and yesterday it was it occurred during this program yesterday, I do not rush to try to ascribe details or motives. I don't make guesses about this stuff. I will. I'm a patient person. I will let the investigation play out. If there's information that I can provide people that might help them, that might uh, protect them, I provide it. One of my big beefs is why media just stopped giving out all of and reporting all of the information regarding suspects, specifically racial and ethnic data. When when somebody's on the loose, if there is an armed and dangerous person on the loose. You should give the public as much information as possible. And I don't care what that information is. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care if you're offended by whatever demographic that the, uh, the suspect at large fits into. doesn't matter to me. When Dylan Roof was on the lookout, you need to tell everybody that that's a white male Somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 20 to 25 years old, driving whatever kind of car, wearing whatever kind of clothing. When he was on the loose, you give out the information so people can protect themselves. So people know, hey, this guy fits that description. We had an example yesterday, though, of an, a, an alert that went out to NC State about a, a sexual assault that had occurred. And all they gave was two men. That was the description. Two men. That is not helpful because if they split up now, oh, well, I just saw one man. So therefore, that's, that guy couldn't possibly be the suspect because they're, we're looking for two men because that's all the information you've got. It's absurd. This, this uh, yeah, I mean, we used to call it back in my day, we used to call it politically correct, right? Political correctness. It's going to get people killed. It probably already has gotten people killed. The faculty member's name, uh, Professor Yan, his his name was not divulged yesterday. Yet the reporting and the response to it I saw, you know, these demands 
from the gun grabbers to, you know, for Republicans to say his name. I bet they won't say his name. We didn't know his name. There's there there's there's this projection that occurs in the wake of these events, these tragedies, these shootings, this projection upon people who are proponents of the Second Amendment, constitutional adherents, right? That, that do not break laws, they're not out there running guns, they're not out there murdering people. But there is this projection that occurs onto them that somehow they want, they want gun violence to occur. Do you realize that gun violence harms their movement? My movement, like I am a Second Amendment supporter. And so every time one of these events happen, we get waylaid, right? We, we are attacked. We are uh, under siege by people who are wanting to just upend the Constitution. And if you would like to change the Second Amendment, there is a method to do that. I encourage you to try it. I do. Go run an amendment. Repeal the Second Amendment. That's the way you do that. It's very clear. They laid it all out in the rule book. But for some reason, we don't see people doing that. All they do is try to do end runs around the Constitution, which to me tells me all I need to know about these folks. All right, let's go over here to the phone lines and get Tim on the program. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hello, Tim. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. I um, just wanted to um, reference something about the individual in the shooting, the, the shooter itself. If you're saying that he was here probably on a student visa or whatever. I'd have to assume so, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd agree. But if he's been here long enough, he can get a green card. If he gets a green card, all he has to do is go to any licensed dealer and with his green card, he can fill out the yellow sheet for a firearm. And then it's the straight same thing as anybody else mm-hmm. in the United States. Right. And and yeah. If he comes by clear, he gets the gun. Right. So I don't right. So I don't know what his status was. I don't know if he had the green card or not. Um, and that's what I mean. So, like, there's a lot we still don't know. But if that's, like, I suspect, if he didn't get it legally, this story goes away very quickly. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, and they're, and they're going to say, oh, this is because of some law that got passed, and that's why he could get it, or this and that. And uh, you know, once again, it's a it's a crime that was committed by somebody who knew the victim, and that's usually the case. And so, when you start asking, then okay, well, how do you prevent this from happening? And Usually the answers that you get in response to the question, always they always track towards the banning of the guns. <laughs> if you get rid of the guns, then they can't buy them. Yeah, Tim, I appreciate the call. Yeah, I don't know what the guy, I don't know what the shooter's status was um, or is. Um, I got to assume he was here on a student visa. Have to assume that. Don't know for how long. Don't know if he overstated. Don't know any of those other details, but we do know that his victim was his student advisor. They worked together for the last uh, almost, what, two years. They had done papers together, research together. So don't know, don't know what prompted it. The university issued the all-clear message at 4.14 yesterday. Uh, classes canceled, obviously, yesterday uh, and today. UNC police 
just as far as the the chronology on this goes, they received a 911 call reporting sh- uh, shots fired inside the lab. The university uh, that was at 102. The university sounded the campus alarms and issued the alert on the text messages and stuff. Um, and that went out at 103. So within a minute, they responded to let everybody know that there was a shooter on campus. An update at 224, so an hour and 20 minutes later, said the campus remained on lockdown as the active assailant situation continued. That's what they called it, an active assailant. That was at 224. Then, nine minutes later, UNC police released a photo of a person of interest, which, as I said yesterday, that's the suspect. Right? When you say person of interest, that's the suspect. The suspect was taken into custody at 2.38, three minutes after they put out the photo. Three minutes later, they got the guy. Hmm. They have not yet found a weapon. Look, great police work. Glad that nobody else got hurt. Tragic that this guy killed his uh, faculty advisor. Don't know what his motive was. Actually, don't even really care. You're a murderer, allegedly. But um, I am kind of curious why it took an hour and 20 minutes to put out the notice that we're still on lockdown. Then nine minutes later, you send out the photo. And then three minutes after that, you arrest the guy. It almost sounds like you knew who you were looking for. And you were at the place where you figured he would be. Someplace off campus. And they got him there. So... We'll have more details as they become available. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's Military Surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. Queen City News reporting a Gastonia church that houses the homeless on its property informed all living at the encampment that they must leave by 8 a.m. yesterday morning. And so that started happening. Just days after a man was shot and killed by another person living in a tent at the church, Faith, Hope, and Love Ministries, located on the 400 block of North Oakland Street, they started moving them out yesterday. Queen City News learned through a county spokesperson that Gaston County Communications had received just a couple of calls for service to the site since January one. There were somewhere in the neighborhood of about 611 calls for service. So let's see, that would have been January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. So what do we got there? Eight months. So like more than 100 calls or almost 100 calls a month, roughly. So maybe like 30 calls or or 90 calls a month. So that's like three a day. We get in three calls a day on average. Three calls a day. Okay. However, if you just look at the period between May and July, 
That actually accounted for the bulk of them. There were 467 calls for service. The ministry has been credited with helping to concentrate the city's homeless population, which does make it easier to do the count that they do all the time, right? They, it, you know, they do the population counts for homeless. and So, I mean, yes, you can, you can count them. They're all in one place. You can count everybody there. However, the neighbors near that concentration camp, that's a terrible, wait, okay. Hang on. It is a concentration of people that are at a homeless camp. Okay. There's a gathering of people at the site. Let's say that. But the problems have been mounting, as you can tell from the 467 calls for service between May, June, July. So that's three months, 460 divided by three. That's. And I was told there would be no math. I got to believe that somewhere in the neighborhood, though, of, uh, what, 150 calls plus per month? No, it's like 180 calls per month. Hmm. That's like, what, five a day. Incidents involved assaults and thefts, but most dealt with overdoses. So, assaults, thefts. And ODs. Neighbors noted that they have found drug needles on their property and believe drug use is still actively happening around the church property where the homeless individuals live. Yes, they've created successfully an open air drug market. And the people who then offer you those drugs, they know where to find you. What with it being a concentration of people and all. After the homicide on August 20th, the pastor of the church, Moses Colbert, Probably Colbert. There's only one person I know that spells that last name, but pronounces it Colbert. But uh, Pastor Moses Colbert said the ministry has been trying to clean up the area with plans to offer addiction help and adult classes. Quote, I'm crying for help, but the help is not coming. We need help, he said. There's a city lawsuit against this church as well. The, uh, the pastor, Colbert, began allowing people to camp on the property about two years ago. The church has even set up uh, toilets, like uh, Porta Johns, I guess. They give them uh, daily meals. Uh, they set up some showers. It's almost like a build it and they will come kind of a thing. Those living in the camp said that it became a haven for drug use. I saw one interview with a, a neighbor who said it's just out of control. And she used to be homeless herself. She was like, but this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to help. The city of Gastonia filed a lawsuit against the church because the church had parked two trailers on the property and they were violating the city's zoning ordinance. Oh, man. I don't, I don't know who to root for here. Because <laughs> on the one hand, God, it's city regulations. But on the other hand, you're creating this public nuisance around. I mean, if you live next door to this church, would you be very happy about them creating this sort of safe zone for this behavior? The trailers were donated and the church said they were trying to bring them into compliance. They applied for the permits. Um, 
but they had that means you got to make them ADA compliant and all of that. He said that the church was facing more than $60,000 in fines related to the trailers. Oh, now I'm like, ah, oh. now I'm like back on his side against the, 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 the government regulations, slapping all of these fines on a church that's just trying to help people. Ah, Colbert said he worried if he didn't disband and clean up the camp, his property could be declared a public nuisance, which would allow the city or county to step in and dismantle the camp anyway. WFAE reporting that at least five people signed up for an emergency shelter through the Salvation Army. Um, others went to stay with family or friends. Some, like Veronica Freeman, applied for a 10-day stay at a drug rehab center operated by Phoenix Counseling Center. Freeman said she had been drug-free for months before moving to the camp and then relapsing in January. Yeah, that's that's what happens when you create the centralized sandbox for people. They know where to go. She said she watched a friend of hers fatally overdose inside the camp. She witnessed the fatal shooting last Sunday outside of her own tent. She said, quote, I'm kind of glad that Pastor Moses made the decision to disband the community, but also, at the same time, it puts everybody else out, uh, here on the street and nowhere to go, so I'm happy but I'm not. There are no easy answers to this problem. No easy answers. And uh, I would like to see, much like the previous topic, I would like to see people be able to engage in the discussion without demagoguery and ascribing motives to people. Let's find the stuff that works. Let's find the stuff that doesn't work. And let's pursue the stuff that does work. How about that? Now, there are signs that America's Mid-sized cities may be more susceptible or at risk to the doom loop. All right, more on that in a minute. First, let me tell you, the Heritage Life Skills event was fantastic. Every year, Bill and Jan Sturette organize the event to help people get educated on how to be prepared for anything. The Sturettes own Carolina Readiness Supply, 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials you'll need for any kind of emergency. Food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies, because being prepared is just smart. The Heritage Life Skills event brings education and vendors from all over to help people do just that. I was honored to be able to be a small part of it. And whether you're an experienced prepper, have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you in Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? By the way, before I get to the doom loop story here, National Review's Ryan Mills had a piece yesterday talking about mm, buyer's remorse, let's say. Amid a spiraling addiction crisis and rampant homelessness, a clear majority of Oregon voters now say they support repealing the 2020 ballot initiative that decriminalized user amounts, so small amounts, of street drugs, including the hard drugs like heroin and methamphetamines. Over two days in early August, Emerson College polling asked 1,000 registered Oregon voters. All right, so this is, it's decent for, you know, public sentiment, but it's not a good barometer for how people will actually vote because these are not likely voters that were asked. So 1,000 registered voters, whether they believe 
that Measure 110 should be repealed in full, or if portions of the law should be repealed, restoring penalties for possession of small amounts of hard drugs, or if the drug decriminalization effort should be left as it is. Okay, so there were three options. Repeal it all, repeal some of it, or leave it in place. When given the choice between full repeal and leaving it in place as is, 56% of respondents backed full repeal. When given a similar choice between repealing portions or to leave it as is, 64% said partial repeal. 64. So either way, when given an option between leave it as it is or do something different, a majority of respondents between 56 and 64% said do something different. They don't want to leave it as is. Both men and women supported a full repeal, men more likely than women to do so. Women were more likely to support partial repeal than men. Multiracial and Hispanic voters were the most likely to support full repeal. 71%. And uh, Asian and white voters were least likely. Down at 48%. Asian, 53%. Whites were the least likely to support a partial repeal. Then when you break it out by age... Yeah, the older people, they were for full repeal. Younger people, they want to leave the law as it is. Leave me alone, man. In November 2020, Oregon voters overwhelmingly passed Measure 110 called the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act, or the D-A-T-R-A, or as I call it, the DATRA, with 58.5%. That's what it passed by. That's a very large margin, right? Proponents led by the George Soros-funded Drug Policy Alliance, spent millions of dollars promoting the initiative. Advocates promised a new progressive approach to addressing drug addiction, saying that people with substance abuse disorders, quote, need adequate access to recovery services, peer support, and stable housing. Advocates said at the time that drug addicts need treatment through a humane, cost-effective health approach, not to be treated like criminals. Once passed, user amounts of hard street drugs got decriminalized. Or hard street drugs, I should say. I think I said hard street drugs. I guess that would be like crack versus like cocaine. Because cocaine is a powder, so it's much softer. Anyway, they also wanted harm reduction efforts, helping addicts to use drugs more safely. That's the stuff that got prioritized. People caught with small amounts of drugs started getting citations like a ticket and a fine, but they really never, ever paid them. But more than two years later, critics say the money for recovery services um, was dispensed too slowly. During that period, rise in fentanyl abuse, drug overdose deaths skyrocketed, and squalid homeless camps have proliferated. Only about 1% of people ticketed for drug possession have actually called the new hotline for any kind of help. Now, the proponents say, hey, the war on drugs lasted 50 years. You've only given us two. Give it some time to let's see if it works. I don't know if the Oregon voters have that kind of patience.